Previously on the British Broadcasting Century podcast... It's late March 1923. The BBC is a third of a year old and still finding its feet and its staff. And nowhere was that a truer problem than in its Cardiff station, 5WA. Only on air for one month so far, it seems unable to find a station director to stick around and stay sober. Meanwhile, BBC head office is grappling with what to offer the listeners. What is broadcast entertainment? Talks? Readings? Plays? Concerts, perhaps? And of what quality and ambition? Highbrow or lowbrow? Well, one man reckons he has the answers. The Cardiff 5WA station may have found its new boss, and Wreath may have met his match. This time, Major Arthur Corbett Smith, a one-of-a-kind radio maverick. He was recently the star character in a radio sitcom by Gareth Gwynn. And we speak to Gareth about what Corbett Smith offered that other BBC pioneers lacked and were alarmed by in Corbett Smith's bizarre manner. He is a fascinating, fascinating man. I have to say, I'm fascinated by Major Corbett Smith. And Dr Andrea Smith, perhaps no relation to Corbett Smith, of the University of Suffolk. She's our resident radio Shakespeare expert, and she tells us all about Arthur Corbett Smith's bold plans to bring the complete works of the Bard to the Welsh wireless. Journey with us then to spring 1923 and meet a true original of British broadcasting here on the British Broadcasting Century. Hello, this is Paul Carenza calling. This is London Calling. Hello, hello. Welcome to episode 68 of the British Broadcasting Century. I'm Paul Carenza. I hope you enjoyed our special on coronation broadcasts. Well, now we have a third coronation to add to that list, but we'll leave that to a future historian to tell that one. But it sparked a question from listener Neil Jackson. He asked on our Facebook page, when did it become the norm to close down with the national anthem? Hmm. Which still goes on today, of course. TV may now be 24-hour, but Radio 4, that does still close down with the National Anthem after the shipping forecast. You can tune in every night about one o'clock in the morning and hear that. But when did it begin? Well, Neil suggests, uh, I get the impression too alone, the other early BBC stations didn't do it, at least not to begin with. Maybe it dates from the start of the corporation. Well, no, in fact, it came in very early, within the first few weeks of the BBC. Thursday, 16th of November on 2ZY Manchester, the National Anthem was played on the BBC for the first time. That's day two of the BBC in Manchester, and day three of the BBC in total. It's not quite known why it didn't appear again until the 2nd of December on 2ZY Manchester. And then London's first airing, Wednesday the 27th of December, is when God Save the King was next played. Then there's a two-day gap, and on the 30th of December, Tuolo plays it again. That's the day that John Reith arrives. Maybe he insisted on it. The national anthem is not mentioned in the listings again for another month, pretty much, till January the 25th, 1923. God Save the King is mentioned once again. That, by chance is the Burns Night broadcast, the first outside broadcast speech, a toast to Robbie Burns. So is it appropriate then for that night to end with God Save the King? It's actually listed then every night that I can see after that. So it seems to have been a nightly fixture from January the 25th, 1923. Arguably adding the national anthem to the end of the programming each day is a sort of a a formation of the public service. Uh, An idea, we've tried this earlier, let's make it a nightly fixture from now on. I hope that answers your question, Neil. Great question. Other queries, welcome to paul at paulcarenza.com. In our last proper episode before the coronation special, we'd reached March 1923 and we were talking all about various public service offerings that had reached the air at this point. Joining news, we had the first daily weather reports and SOS messages. 
And here's one we left out, actually. We could have mentioned the time signal was starting to come in at this point. Not the pips, that would be the following year, but by March 1923, the Manchester and the Cardiff stations were sending out radio broadcasts that you could set your clock by. This is from Wireless Weekly magazine, 11th of April, 1923. In addition to the regular broadcasting programme, which has been successfully carried on for some time at the Manchester station, we learn that a new feature is being tried. The well-known Paris time signals, transmitted by means of the spark system from the Eiffel Tower Paris at 10.44pm, are received upon a separate aerial at the Manchester station, and by means of special apparatus are made to operate the CW transmitting set, so that the actual time signals are retransmitted upon the broadcasting wavelength. The time involved is estimated to be about one three-hundredths of a second only. So there you go. Manchester was broadcasting the exact time live from Paris a fraction of a second late. Well, perhaps to the nearest 30 seconds it may have been. Reginald Jordan of 2ZY. In the very first days, there was quite a to-do about the time signal. We used to announce for a long time beforehand that uh, listeners should stand by in order to get the accurate time signal from Paris, direct from Paris. I've no idea why, but... uh, In a room, I should think about 100 yards away from the studio, was uh, the the most complicated piece of apparatus known to man at that time, a six-valve set, which remained tuned direct to Paris. The announcer, after warning everybody to stand by, went through about half a dozen swing doors and up and down steps and so on to this room, uh, put on the headphones, and as soon as he heard the first pip of the six pips coming from Paris, threw off the phones, rushed back through all the doors, and by the time he got to the microphone, hit a gong as hard as he could, which might, of course, have been somewhere near six o'clock. As for Cardiff, they were doing similar. The Western Mail reported on the 5th of April, 1923. In connection with the recent experiment of the Manchester station of receiving and broadcasting the Eiffel Tower time signal at 10.44pm every day, it's of interest to note that for some time past, the Cardiff station has been transmitting Greenwich time at 9pm and 10pm daily, programme permitting. Quite a number of people who have called at the concert room have said that they timed their watches and clocks by these signals. Pips would follow, and of course, we'll do a podcast all about that. But that Cardiff station there, it needs a new boss. So, March 26th, 1923, the same day as the first daily weather report, enter Major Arthur Corbett Smith. I am imbued with the highest sense of public duty, and what greater calling could there be than broadcasting? You will discover that my work is my wife, the public, my children. <laughs> And also my actual wife is from Neath, so she's very keen to return to the area. In March of 23, Major Arthur Corbett Smith enters the scene. Gareth Gwynn rejoins us on the podcast to tell us about it, because he's written this marvellous sitcom, Ministry of Happiness. Hello again, Gareth. Hello, thank you for having me again. Welcome back. And you, more than anyone, have have, have researched into Major Arthur Corbett Smith and indeed the early days of Cardiff 5AA. What are the essentials that we need to know about this rather unusual person and period of history? He's a very difficult man to put in a box. It's only, you know, as you say, March 1923. We're only six weeks into uh, 5WA. He's the fifth station manager. <laughs> he's, he's walked into something that hasn't been going particularly well. Um, Rex Palmer has been coming and going as station manager in between various other characters. Frederick Roberts, who was dismissed because he was drunk in his office. So he lost his job after something like 48 hours. Um, there are various other people, and then Arthur Corbett Smith gets the job. 
and he is he's described as this like quite energetic character cecil lewis described him as a short well-knit figure very straightforward something vigorous and rather aggressive in face and carriage manic others said so he fought in the first world war he has worked in london theater he put on a play in the strand which he produced so he's got that sort of things i believe he worked as a composer for a bit and he's Mm -hmm. got a musical background as well He's worked in China. He wrote a book on the retreat of Mon in the First World War, which he was which he was present for. He had a very odd career. He was founded this organisation promoting sexual health as well, which I know you opened your your yes. sitcom talking about. So this is fascinating. He wrote a book called The Problem of the Nations, which was all about sexual health. And I read it to try and get a sense of his voice a bit. It was the first thing I found that I could... Because obviously there's no recordings of him. But it was the first thing I read to just go, well, what did he sound like? And how, how would he come across? And it was the first time I got the sense of, like, oh, he sounds like a P.G. Woodhouse character. A lot of what I hear about him, he reminds me of Smith in the P.G. Woodhouse books. This quite, like, self-aggrandizing character <laughs> that he's sort of like, oh, Sexual health, I'm going to solve this problem. And he sort of barges in and writes the book that's going to solve it. And the book is incredibly odd because it talks about the science and he's got this attitude of, oh, as I'm not a scientist, I will bring worldly wisdom to this problem, is is his sort of tone. Mm. And you read the book and then the final chapter is written in the form of a letter to his godson providing advice in this particular field which is the oddest way to end a book. And I don't know what the... I think the idea is, is this is how you should attempt to have this conversation with younger people. But it's the strangest chapter of a book I think I've ever I'll read. That, I'll bear that in mind with my son. That's good to know. It's, I'll uh, just quote very, it verbatim. It's very peculiar. It's this long, meandering letter <laughs> to a godson, all written with a very much a sort of like nudge-nudge, wink-wink angle to it. Yeah, yeah. As it just goes on and on. But it's... Yeah, and that's, that's online. And that was my first... Um, first thing I really read by him he sees himself, I get the impression as someone who's going to come to 5WA and let everybody know about this. He also sees radio and I, this is what I find very interesting about him he sees radio as its own distinct artistic medium and he quickly seems to decide that what other stations are doing is just broadcasting news reports doing talks, it's all quite formal, and all the moves that Arthur Corbett Smith seems to make are to try and just make it all a little bit more relaxed. Mm. So one of the things is that he um, he renames talks on 5WA to chats. He thinks that's quite an important thing in terms of like what people can expect from the station. He renames children's hour to hour of the kiddiewinks and all these sort of things. It doesn't quite fit in. But in his time that he's there, he's trying to shake things up. And what I find interesting about him is that the way he talks about radio, I think he'd be much happier working in radio today. Right, okay. Because because the way that he talks about radio be in this slightly more relaxed manner and as its own artistic medium, as I say, mm. not just sticking a microphone in the corner and broadcasting whatever play is being performed, actually commissioning plays for the wireless is it. Mm. I think he would be more comfortable today. He wrote in the Western Mail, You must not think we are highbrows. If we have not given you enough funny stuff, it's simply because we cannot put our hands on the people. 
and yet his aims were clearly for high art. 5WA may be the first radio station in Britain, if not the world, to treat radio as its own distinct artistic medium. It has become a home for the true creative, and we've developed a genuine bond with our audience far beyond what your company could have ever imagined. He was artistic, he was ambitious. In time, he wanted to bring Shakespeare and symphonies to the people of South Wales. I have to say, I'm fascinated by Major Corbett Smith. The expert on Shakespeare on the air is Dr Andrea Smith of the University of Suffolk. Bit of an eccentric, I think it's fair to say. Very much interested in um, drama. He was the one, if anyone wanted to do the full canon, it was him. In 1923-24, he does make a launch to do the full canon, one play once a fortnight um, for months this goes on. I've forgotten how many he did in total. It's about 20, I think. And he appears in some of them. Corbett Smith appeared as Romeo against uh, Marjorie Unette as Juliet in an excerpt of the balcony scene from, of course, Romeo and Juliet. Can you imagine a radio station boss today going, yup, I'm going to be Romeo? One of the actors he uses, actually, is Howard Rose, who goes on to be a, a very important BBC radio drama producer. So he, Howard Rose starts off as an actor and one of his first radio jobs is, is in Cardiff um, and playing the leads in some of those. As for those Shakespeare plays, then, you'd have uh, an extract from King John on the 10th of April, 1923. June the 25th, you had the first OB in Wales. That was uh, 20 minutes of broadcast from the Capital Cinema by Lionel Falkman and his orchestra. Go forward a couple of years, the 12th of March, 1925, you get Cardiff's first gramophone record broadcast, apparently. So till then, I guess it was all live music. And soon, five hours a month was gramophone records. So clearly that was frowned upon to begin with. As for the plays, between October 1923 and June 1924, in that eight months, they had 20 plays. That's one a fortnight. But yeah, Arthur Corbett Smith was very passionate, did all these Shakespeare plays. It got a very mixed reaction from the public. It's just the right way to bore the listening in public to tears and to damn the immortal bard in 10,000 homes, said one newspaper correspondent. As far as I'm aware, it's the first newspaper row about radio drama. One listener wrote to the Western Mail, identifying himself as Paterfamilias, yes, like a Twitter tag. Is it fair for the Cardiff Broadcasting Station to work off on a trusting public their pet hobbies? We are not interested in wandering through 37 Shakespearean plays in strict chronological order or in Russian symphony concerts. Paterfamilias was then either criticised himself or backed by countless other letter writers, starting quite a frenzy of feedback among the readers and the listeners. You had people writing in saying, we don't want this Shakespeare nonsense. And people saying, but we think it's brilliant. You must be stupid not to want it. We're not stupid. And uh, this is going on. They start basically name calling in the local paper. (laughs) The Cardiff station should attempt only such programmes as it is competent to deal with. Let the station director put his personal obsessions on one side. And whenever London or any other station can, because they happen to perhaps have the talent and facilities, give us a more suitable programme, let's have it. There had been some criticism, too, that Corbett Smith's eager Shakespeare productions contained actors not quite up to standard. Corbett Smith was defensive, at one point apparently saying on air that it was Shakespeare's fault for writing such a dull play. As for the symphonies... Last Sunday night revealed how embarrassing it is for a well-meaning but inexperienced orchestra to attempt these colossal and neurotic continental barbarisms. So said one newspaper correspondent. Oh, it's a twist 
Twitter storm, including the 1924 equivalent of, if you don't like it, you can switch it off, you know. I'm not compelled to swallow it against my will. I simply put the phone down and wonder what I used to do before wireless became a pleasure. And in the end, um, Corbett Smith is giving a, a, a talk somewhere um, and he says, look, you know, we're not being highbrows. This is not about highbrow. We just want to bring you beautiful poetry and beautiful music. And I thought that for me really sums up what Shakespeare should be about. It shouldn't be about this is a highbrow thing just for highbrows to listen to. It should be beautiful poetry, beauty music. And for my money, Shakespeare should be entertainment. And I think really right from the very early days, actually, that's what everybody in the BBC who's presented Shakespeare has attempted to do, some more successfully than others. But that's been the aim. Court Smith brought to 5WA Cardiff travel shows with the magic carpet. There was a five-minute bulletin of Welsh news alongside the National. They had special nights like Countryside Night when country folk would bring their rural accents to the air. It's a far cry from the Rethian English that you would hear elsewhere soon enough. Apart from, though, that St David's Day one-off and that five-minute bulletin of Welsh news, all of Corbett Smith's programmes were in English. There were no other Welsh broadcasts regularly in those early days. Here's something else they got there first with. You might be aware of Beatrice Harrison famously playing her cello to the nightingale. We've yet to reach that point. That's later on in the 1920s. But Major Corbett Smith, he got there first. He stuck a microphone in Llandaff Cathedral in March of 1924 broadcasted the chirps and flutterings of the birds that lived there. So you've got nature, travel, Shakespeare, symphonies. They broadcast a full opera as well, written by Arthur Corbett Smith. Not since Peter Eckersley had any broadcaster come up with their own opera. Of course, Eckersley just improvised his. Corbett Smith actually wrote his out and took it seriously. This from Arthur Corbett Smith's memoir, written, oddly, in the third person. Apart from the church services and the children's hour and one or two special features like the Brains Trust, there is nothing in radio entertainment known today which Corbett Smith did not originate or which is not the logical development of his pioneering work. And he worked at the microphone under five different names and voices. I think he was one of the the first, if not the first, to, to sort of isolate each night of the week as a different thing. So you'd have Shakespeare on one night and a symphony on the other and things like that. So rather than each night being, you know, the London way was you do his children and then a concert and a talk and a bit more music. And that was every night. And they occasionally have themed nights, you know, they have a Burns night when it's all Scottish or Australia day where it was all Australian. But I think he was going, no, look, on a Monday, let's have this, let's have poetry, whatever it might be. You know, I've got that wrong, I'm sure. But that way people know who like that, they'll tune in on Monday and, and so on. And it took a while for that to, you know, certainly when I grew up, Radio 2 had that night's folk music, that night yeah. is all good music, that <laughs> night is that, you know. It is all the, the sort of things that now we take for granted. But mm. you go through the old Radio Times. I, I went to the Radio Times archive in Wales and I just I read every one for the first year just to get a sense for what they were doing. And you do get popular night. And that's mm. what we, we get this evening. And it's it's all things that are... The idea is that they've got slightly wider appeal and then that means on other nights they can do other things. The full weekly lineup was a Monday, Men's Night, Tuesday, Literary Night, Wednesday, Country Life Night, Thursday, Science Night, Friday, Women's Night, Saturday, Political Night and Sunday, Symphony Concert. Apparently the Sunday Symphony Concert was the most popular item of the week uh, and Tuesday Literary Evenings also went down very well, uh, but that was according to Arthur Corbett Smith. So can you believe it? 
because yes, some listeners wrote to newspapers to say that Sunday's worthy sermons and Tuesday's Shakespearean onslaughts were actually the worst broadcast days of the week. And that far from Cardiff leading the way, those with more powerful valve sets could hear other radio stations and could hear how far behind those Cardiff actually was. I think Cardiff was maybe just a little different. So he left the BBC and he seems to have written two books about his time at the BBC. One is called My Radio Year, which I cannot track down. And I've been to the British Library and they do not have. And then he wrote another book, which is in the British Library, and I have read cover to cover. All this soapbox jargon about ideals and educating the public to a higher standard is only nauseous and irritating. The mere suggestion tends to damn the enterprise. The public want honest, straightforward, inspiriting, human entertainment, and nothing else. Our radio programmes, What is Wrong and Why, suggested by Corbett Smith. If the BBC cannot present beauty and noble ideas in such form and refuse to learn how to do so, they should, in the national interest, make room for an organisation that has the power and the knowledge. And lines like, every single radio programme should be built and presented as to form a perfect fusion of art, education and popular entertainment. And I think it's really interesting because obviously Mm. you've got the Rethian values of inform, educate and entertain and they feel like they shouldn't be miles apart. Mm. But Arthur Continent's got this idea of, like, every programme has this holistic, every programme should be its own piece of art that entertains. Merely to transplant the lecture room or the concert hall or the stage to the broadcasting studio is to court disaster, or at least to fall short of success. That is a reproduction, and here again the BBC is at fault. Any skilful student can go to the National Gallery and copy the pictures there on the walls. The BBC are admirable students and copyists, but we do not want copies... We want originals. We do not want students. We want masters. What I find particularly interesting about him is that he's only in charge of 5WA for about a year, I think just over a year. And there is an implication in everything that I've read that he is slightly shuffled out of the BBC, mm. that John Ruth doesn't really like him. <laughs> I think, he doesn't wants- he... I think he ends up back in London again, but in a sort of a demoted role that they can keep an eye yeah. on somewhere, isn't it? So uh, it doesn't yeah, last he, too long there. He ends up in a in a, a role which is called Intelligence, which appears to be some sort of audience research department. Dead Radio is swiftly losing all its original attraction as a novelty. We used to listen, but we have long given it up. And run by children for children, they say. There may be a steady yearly increase in the number of licences issued, but that is no guide to success. The BBC was the result of private enterprise. Half a dozen men sitting around a table and a small office on loan to start with. Those men were all men of note in commerce and industry, engaged in the manufacture or sale of radio apparatus. Their interests were wholly industrial or commercial. They began the creation of a great machine. They created that machine, and a machine it remains, a machine without a soul. And that is what is wrong with the BBC. There's a very odd line in this book, broadcasting um, in the BBC and the BBC in Wales by John Davis, which is like the big history book on BBC BBC in Wales. There's a line that implies, I have to find it, that his behaviour around the general strike saw him leave the BBC. Oh, and yeah, I don't really, I, I don't really understand what that means. Yeah. But, uh, he, he's a he's a bit of a square peg, is the mm. truth. 
in what I think is quite a formal organisation. Here's what Arthur Corbett-Smith had to say about Wreath. A man such as would contract to supply the British Army with a million shells within the month when the shell factories were not even built, and then give delivery in three weeks. A first-class organiser, and a businessman in fact. But he knew nothing whatever about entertainment work. How should he? Of the art for which his own company existed, he had, I imagine, never even heard. His initial profession, they tell me, was concrete engineering. But he had, as I say, a genius for the machinery of organisation, and the machine went on growing under his capable hands. Business organisation is one thing, artistic creation and direction is quite another. As I have observed, a man must be born to that. In a concern like the BBC, to combine the two in one man is a sheer physical impossibility. It's really interesting that Corbett Smith and Reith seem to rub each other up the wrong way. Yeah, yeah. And the best sign that I've seen that they rub each other up the wrong way was the other... So I, I went to the British Library and I went, I want everything you've got by Arthur Corbett Smith. And I got our radio programmes, What is Wrong and Why. And the other book was um, his memoir. And it's weird because it's written in the third person. Corbett Smith was one of that tiny handful of men who, through the ages, have been born and become equipped at precisely the right moment of time for the particular pioneering and creative career which each was destined to follow. A virgin page was open to them for the writing. Corbett Smith seized his moment and exploited it to the full. But I think it's written by him. I can't quite work it. <laughs> right, okay. I, yes. I, I sort of sat, I read it, I read it and I went, I can't work this out because there's no author listed. It's yeah. called a memoir. It's about Arthur Corbett Smith, but it's definitely written in the third person, and it makes out he's the greatest man who ever lived. Well, it definitely sounds like him. Any summary of Corbett Smith's career is impossible. If that were possible, no average intelligence could grasp it. At one point, he compares... Well, whoever has written the book compares Corbett Smith to Marie Curie in terms of <laughs> influence on the 20th century. Yeah, yeah. Peculiar... London HQ sought humbly to gather some of the crumbs that fell from his table, and the managing director, John Reith, made frequent visits to Cardiff to pick his brains. In that, the claim is made that he was shuffled out of the BBC mm. because John Reith saw him as a threat. Right. And that is there in black and white. By the end of the year, 1923, it was obvious to Reith, managing director, that at all costs, Corbett Smith must be got rid of. So devastating a rival could not be tolerated. How this affected reveals as clever and dirty a piece of chicanery as English annals can show. Yes, Arthur Corbett Smith certainly retained a grudge against Reith. Perhaps even framing his own autobiography in the third person, just to make his own argument sound weightier. So I think there's definitely a clash of personalities there. Mm. And I don't know to what extent Joris did see him as a threat or just saw him as a little bit of a loose cannon who he wanted to get rid of. His last act before leaving the BBC was to hand in a long, comprehensive and fairly constructive memorandum for such development. This alone is worth your year's salary, said Mr Gladstone Murray at the time. It quickly came to be recognised as the Magna Carta of Broadcasting Entertainment. No other man in the world could have done what he did. He had the knowledge, the experience, the power of presentation and the innate spiritual drive. The combination was, and must remain, unique in history. No one writes about Arthur Corbett Smith like Arthur Corbett Smith. The note I've got here on him leaving the BBC is that he um, was moved to the head office in the spring of 24, didn't find much to do, left by Christmas to become a programme critic, within the BBC that is, um, but was loathed by Reith 
until he left just at the end of the company years in September of 26, just before it became a corporation. Um, and then that he and his sad end of his days that he often used to publicize who was going to kill himself. And then he did in 1945 in Margate. So, yeah. And, it's... He, and he wrote a letter to announce that that's what he's done, which was published in, I think, The Times. But you can find it. Mm. The, the letter where he announces that he feels like he's lived long enough. And, wow. and that's that. He's, he's a very complex character, is the mm. truth. I think he was a very restless man. The fact that he worked as a theatre producer, a Venice composer, he wrote books, he wrote, um, he wrote a biography of Nelson, you know, there's all these sort of things. Mm. He, he seems to dart around from thing to thing, then he's in charge of radio station. During the year he was on radio, they think he presented 300 programmes himself, while also being mm. station manager. And I read his contract as station manager as well. It was seven days a week and 14-hour days. Now, I don't know how much of that he actually did, but it, it, it sounded a punishing thing mm. to be a, a director of a station in those days. Corbett Smith stood not only as the most capable man in the country, as the managing director, John Reith, termed him, but the only man in the country equipped for the job with a quarter of a century's practical experience in the art for which radio broadcasting exists. The rest of the directing staff was composed of enthusiastic, ardent young men in the twenties with no experience whatever. Mr. H. G. Wells admirably summed up the position in 1925. Corbett Smith at the BBC is like Jack Hobbs batting for a boys' preparatory school. I think he's a cricketer. There's articles in the Radio Times where he describes his his colleagues, which are quite entertaining, and he seems to try to foster um, pleasant atmosphere amongst mm. the amongst the staff. He, he's very complimentary for everybody who he works with. He complimented his Cardiff colleagues, but he had less generous words in his memoir for the London staff, dismissing almost everyone as inexperienced. If you've been paying attention on this podcast, you'll know who he's talking about. Director of programmes. He was an enthusiast on the technical side. Arthur Corbett Smith's views on another Arthur, Arthur Burroughs. Well known during the German war and a capable journalist. But again, art and entertainment were quite outside his ken. As to Cecil Lewis, the deputy director of programmes. Well, another firm appointed an organiser of programmes. A young flying officer, lately returned from trying to teach the Chinese something of the science of flying. He, too very naturally knew nothing of Enlightenment work. But as a young man of rare push-and-go, he was most useful in the development of the machine he at least created. As to the eventual Deputy Director-General, Admiral Carpendale... A retired Admiral of the Royal Navy. He too had no knowledge of entertainment work, and as a senior naval officer, his outlook on the subject may readily be gauged. Other senior members of the artistic staff included a young enthusiast newly come from the Royal College of Music. That'll be Stanton Jeffries. A musician and conductor of international repute for the company's general director of music. Percy Pitt. A bachelor of science with a very pleasing radio voice. Rex Palmer. And later, a prominent educationist lent by the Board of Education. A J.C. Stobart. That may be said to have been the London nucleus until 18 months or so ago. Not one single individual, it'll be observed, had had the least experience or training in that most intricate art of catering for the public in entertainment. And yet this was an artistic enterprise, the greatest in the country, perhaps the greatest in the world. At the present time, to the best of my knowledge, there are only two men out of a staff that must run into hundreds who can justly be said to possess the birth gift and so anything of the knowledge, experience and inclination demanded for the art as a whole. Thus, there is no leader, no captain. So the machine went on growing, the machine without a soul. 
Wreath sees my dynamic and spontaneous approach as a threat. I must not dilly-dally. London is the goal for old Corbett Smith. <laughs> There's no recordings of him, of course, but thanks to your marvellous sitcom, <laughs> um, it's adding to the uh, you know the, the weight of historical... You know, we get a sense of him, which is marvellous, so we I commend hope, you for I, that. I hope so. It's, it's very strange doing something where, from these little scraps of either things he's... Like I said, I, I tried to read anything I could that he'd written, or descriptions of him trying to piece together what someone was like and i realized i could end up being very wide of the mark but he is certainly one of the few people who you read about and you go oh he is an almost mm. fully formed sitcom character <laughs> yeah. you see you sort yeah. of go yeah, yeah everything yeah. about him feels like he should be in a sitcom yeah. so um so i've done that at least even if it's even if it ends up being wide of the mark We'll he's, never know. He's one of a kind, certainly. He so, certainly is. Uh, he is. There you are. Um, wonderful. Well, thank you. Well, and your sitcom is Ministry of Happiness, which by the time this podcast airs will probably have fallen off BBC Sounds, but you never know. It might You never be know. Back. I it know. Might. I was so wondering we, that. we plant that so that it, I'm yeah. sure it's out there. People look hard enough in, hidden in the, have a look. The, BBC, <laughs> the BBC's dark web that I'm sure exists somewhere. <laughs> so that's is Major Arthur Corbett-Smith and Cardiff of March 1923. But before we go, let's have a quick zip to the northeast because also in March 1923, there was another movement of a station director. This is 5NO in Newcastle. Now, we're not going to bring you every single movement of every single staff member. That would make for an even more tedious podcast than I'm trying to give you now. But the important stuff, I want to make sure you get that. So we've not mentioned 5NO Newcastle for a while on this podcast tale of early British broadcasting. It was the fourth BBC station, started just before Christmas 1922. Now, can anyone remember who was the station director? I'll give you a few seconds. He started the Newcastle station from the back of a lorry. There was a barking dog that kept interrupting. And he claimed to be the only person to single-handedly bankroll a British radio station because the money hadn't arrived yet. The name of that Newcastle station director was Tom Payne. When Mr. Reith came up about three weeks after for this interview, he said to me, Mr. Payne, when we're going to the station, he says, what are you doing for money? I said, well, I'm paying out of the Payne and Hornsby banking account my own. I claim that I'm the only individual that ever kept a broadcasting station running out of his own pocket, and that is the truth. Ah, oh, there he is. Well, like the first Cardiff station director, Tom Payne did not last long, although he lasted longer than the day or so that the first Cardiff boss managed, found drunk in his office. No, Tom Payne in Newcastle managed three months from late December to March 1923. Turns out that Burroughs and Reith thought he wasn't quite the right fit for the BBC, and I think he sensed that ill feeling, and off he went. He was replaced then temporarily by Captain Cecil Lewis. This from Popular Wireless magazine. Captain Lewis tells me that although he has a large and appreciative audience in the Newcastle area, it is a curiously silent one. He believes that it is due to the fact that the northerner is naturally less inclined to enthuse. He goes on to say that he finds this very particularly with the children, and that only one will write to him where dozens would in London. So that's from Popular Wireless magazine, but elsewhere in Cecil Lewis's book Broadcasting from Within, he actually says the Newcastle listeners were a little too vocal in their responses sometimes. 
Here are his rather rude words about Newcastle locals. The area is not an easy one to cater for. It contains a large industrial and mining population, and these folk are outspoken, as is the want of the people in the north. Moreover, the area is not so rich as some others in native talent. This increases enormously the difficulty of compiling high-class programmes. Cheeky so-and-so, no wonder they're outspoken. So Cecil Lewis there is just a stand-in station director at Newcastle 5-0 until they could initiate Bertram Fryer into the mysteries of running a broadcasting station. Yes, yeah, so Bertram Fryer, he was the replacement station boss to come up there. He was from the theatre, a showman, but rather clueless as to running a radio station. Willing to learn, though, and Newcastle thrived under Bertram Fryer's command. Like other station directors, Bertram Fryer went on the air in the children's hour, confusingly called Uncle Jack. He was ably supported by Uncle Will Simpson and Uncle Nick, properly known as Colonel Milliken. I wonder if there's any relation to Sarah Milliken, another Geordie star who's been on the BBC, of course. Well, Colonel Milliken was actually head glooper, and the gloopers were basically the club of children's listeners. We'll do another episode when we get to summer 1923, all about the early radio circle and kids' clubs that popped up all around the provincial station's children's hours. But uh, 5-0 Newcastle's kids' club was called the gloopers. Bertram Fryer was a popular station boss. When he left Newcastle to set up the Bournemouth station, he was replaced by a somewhat shy and retiring journalist. Uh, E.L. Odoms became the new station boss. I think Odoms was related to John Reith's wife's family, in fact. But as for that old boss in Newcastle, Bertram Fry was given such a great send-off when he left for Bournemouth that, in fact, many Geordies started tuning in to the Bournemouth station, if they could, to still hear him. This from Cecil Lewis's 1924 book that we're reading on Patreon right now, Broadcasting from Within. Newcastle listeners say they can still hear his voice and cheerful manner just as clearly from Bournemouth as they could when he was in Newcastle. They feel that in this way they can still keep in touch with him, and I believe his departure from Newcastle sent the sale of valve sets sky high because so many people regretted his going. They added valves to their sets so as not to lose him. If this is the case, we shall have to move all the station directors about the country periodically to increase the sale of expensive apparatus. Lastly, while we're in Newcastle, an email we've had from a listener whose wife's relative was one of the early performers on Newcastle 5NO. This is from Robert Oxlade. Hi, Robert. He says, My wife's grandmother was a singer in the early days of the Beeb at Newcastle 5NO. Apparently, she had to sit on a wheeled stool when singing and be wheeled backwards from a huge meat-safe microphone as she hit the big notes. Good idea. Use that sort of wheelchair and you can have someone to pull them back every time they hit a big note. He says, I've forgotten her first name, possibly Elsie, but Golightly was her surname. Well, yes, Robert, I've had a look in the old listings. Elsie Golightly was her name. First performance, 10th of Feb 1923, on 5-0 Newcastle. Uh, again, on the 28th of April 1923, and throughout the early 20s there, she mostly sang with Tom Golightly. And uh, Robert adds in his email, Tom was Elsie's father, my wife's great-grandfather. We have a picture of him hanging on our staircase wall. Tom was a Freemason who could not only play the saw, but the violin as well. Well, thank you, Robert. He also turned out had a great baritone voice because he was very popular on the early beeve. Elsie and Tom go lightly, daughter and father, regulars on 5-0 uh, until November 1928. It turns out when Tom's name vanishes from the listings, bless him. And Elsie then sings solo throughout the 1930s. Thank you, Robert. 
Much appreciated. If you'd like to send me an email, paul at paulcarenza is the email address. Do get in touch. And thank you, Dr. Andrea Smith and Gareth Gwynn, for the interviews this episode and your insights on Major Arthur Corbett Smith. Andrea will return in a few episodes' time as we reach the Shakespeare's birthday broadcasts of 1923. And on that episode, we'll tell you our latest findings about the first radio drama on The Beeb. There are some lovely surprises in store on that episode. Next time, well, we've hired Arthur Corbett Smith for Cardiff. Let's hire somebody else, shall we? BBC HQ in April 23 welcomed Ella Fitzgerald. Not that one. She's put in charge of Children's Hour and women's programmes. So next time, are you sitting comfortably? Then we'll begin to look at the Children's Hour and other ways across the century that kids' programmes have become part of our daily routines with a marvellous guest, Dr Amy Holdsworth. It's a great interview. Subscribe, and you'll get it when this podcast next lands. Share this podcast. Others will get it too. Support us on Patreon, and we can keep making more episodes, and I will send you writings and videos in return. But in summary, a final doff of the cap to Arthur Corbett Smith. Radio is the perfect medium to disseminate such information. I understand your concern as to whether the radiards might be ready for such conversation. The who? Radiards. Those of us who have invested in a wireless set. That's what I propose we call them. Radiards. Fascinating. Here in the British Broadcasting Company, we call them listeners in. That excerpt of the Ministry of Happiness is courtesy of Mighty Bunny Productions, writer Gareth Gwynn, and the BBC. BBC content is used with kind permission. BBC copyright content reproduced courtesy of the British Broadcasting Corporation. All rights reserved. The British Broadcasting Century is presented and produced by me, Paul Carenza. Original music is by Will Farmer. Unoriginal music is by Copycats. And Aboriginal music is by the Indigenous Peoples of Australia. But that's not relevant right now. Ah, well, it's good to stay informed, educated and entertained. And that's all we strive to do here on this mammoth project, charting the history of British broadcasting. So join us next time for Children's Hour and its descendants here on the British Broadcasting Century. Goodbye, comradios, and good night, children, everyone.